We recently passed the 20-year anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, which subsequently marks 20 years of the war on terrorism, a broad and open-ended campaign to militarily dominate entire regions of the world. Islamophobia is an essential component of this imperialist violence, making it okay for the U.S. to be waging war against Muslims for decades with no end in sight. Racism and dehumanization of the other underpins U.S. foreign policy. Islamophobia took center stage for the war on terror, but it's been pervasive throughout our history. As the empire sets its sights on new targets, how will it continue to play a role in American politics? Today, I'm talking to Deepa Kumar, professor of journalism and media studies at Rutgers University. She just released the second edition of her book, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire. Deepa, thank you so much for joining me on the Empire Files podcast. Thank you, Abby. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. So I want to get your reaction to this statement by Sam Harris to start out. (laughs) You know, he's this (laughs) thought leader in the New Atheist Movement. In an article years ago by The Atlantic, he is asked what his reaction is to the term Islamophobia. He points to a tweet saying, quote, Islamophobia, a word created by fascists used by cowards to manipulate morons. He then goes on to say, quote, Islam is not a race, ethnicity, or nationality. It's a set of ideas. Criticism of these ideas should never be confused with an animus toward people. And yet it is. I'm convinced this is done consciously, strategically, and quite cynically as a means of shutting down conversation on important topics. Deepa, what is your response? Yeah, um, I think the same applies to Sam Harris, which is his deliberate misrepresentation of Islamophobia as criticism of Islam serves as a way for him to endorse policies that really are fundamentally racist. Now, where he is correct is when he says that Islam is a religion, but religions have been racialized. That is to say, adherents of a particular religion have been turned into a race of people in order to justify all sorts of policies. We certainly know this to be true um, of Jewish people. It is also true of uh, Muslims. And you have seen this process actually, as I write in my book, beginning all the way in the early modern era in Spain, where they introduced these blood purity laws which were first applied to Jewish people to say that even if they converted to Christianity, their blood was impure and therefore they could not occupy offices. They could not occupy professional jobs. And as we know, they were expelled from Spain in 1492. Similar mass expulsion of Muslims happens in the early 17th century. So I think to ignore this history of ethnic cleansing, of violence, and of the racialization of both Muslims as well as Jews is deeply problematic. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Harris's view, according to him, is that organized religion itself is a reactionary institution. So any critique or attack on religion is actually progressive, right? Like you have Harris and people like Bill Maher, these influential so-called liberals that perpetuate this belief that it's okay to single out religion and specifically Islam as this kind of barbaric manifestation of religion instead of looking at actual root causes of terrorism. You know, things like structural violence built into our economic system or U.S. foreign policy. Absolutely. I mean, I do not have a problem with people engaging in constructive criticism of any religion. Um, That's totally fine. But the problem, as you said, Abby, very correctly, is that their daggers are pointed particularly at Muslims, right? Islam is targeted as being particularly barbaric, um, as if Christianity does not have its own history of the Crusades, of the Inquisition, and so forth, right? This is a very selective way in which some of us are presented 
as good and others as evil. Uh, some of us are civilized, others are uncivilized and barbaric and so forth. So the problem, of course, is that because this is presented in somewhat progressive language as a critique of religion, um, it's abstract and people tend to think that these folks are actually innocent in their intentions, that they have no motivations. But in fact, if, I, I'd add Christopher Hitchens to this as well. Mm -hmm. He's part of a trio of new atheists. Um, they're all part of, you know, a certain ideological milieu that actually supports empire and U.S. imperialism. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Sam Harris's infamous op-ed why tor why I support torture or whatever. I mean, it was just cartoonish. I mean, it really is interesting, this kind of new iteration of the class clash of civilizations myth. I mean, in the 21st century, it's like this notion of Orientalism that continues to rear its ugly head that justifies neocolonialism still to this day. Because according to people like Sam Harris, you know, the million dead Iraqis, all of these things are just unfortunate happenstances of an empire that has good intentions, right? And when we do things is with good intentions. And so whatever happens as a result of those good intentions, well, it wasn't our fault. Right. I mean, you know, this is not new, right? This line yeah. of argumentation is not something that was developed in the 21st century. After all, the U.S. as a nation state was formed through westward expansion, through a settler colonial project that was about forcibly dispossessing indigenous people of their lands and in the process, carrying out a genocide. And the way in which this all got justified, of course, was that, you know, it was a civilized people who were going to develop uh, the land. There's a manifest destiny to go off and make the land productive. And it was claimed that because Native American people were not sedentary and didn't use the, la the land productively, it, they therefore had no right to it. And, you know, it was going to, it's better, John Locke and, other argued, uh, uh, and others argued that, you know, um, Anglo settlers take it over and so forth. And of course, you know, the history of genocide is, is papered over in the process. And I think the same has happened with respect to Muslims in the last 20 years. If you look at the official death toll of the so-called war on terror, the, uh, the um, cost of war project at Brown University estimates that upwards of 900,000 people have been killed due to you know, direct US war involvement. Um, now, of course, their definition is direct war deaths, right? If you factor in indirect deaths, such as people dying from the lack of access to medical care because infrastructure has been destroyed, as was done in Iraq in the 90s and then again in 2003 and beyond. If you look at deaths related to the fact that people don't have access to clean drinking water, right? All of the consequences of war, you factor those in and we are talking possibly about millions of people that the United States has been responsible for killing. I'll just give one more example, which is that journalist Anand Gopal has a fantastic piece in The New Yorker about, uh, it's titled The Other Afghan Women, Woman, in which he interviews Afghan women from the countryside. And in there, you know, he's he, he talks to a number of families and he notes something significant. He says that every Afghan family in the countryside that he spoke to knows 10 to 12 people in their immediate family that have been killed by U.S. strikes. And this is what leads somebody like human rights advocate Malalai Joya, who was the youngest woman of the Afghan parliament, to say that over a million Afghans have been killed in the U.S. occupation. So that's just Afghanistan. Think about all the other places, Iraq, uh, 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 you know, uh, Yemen um, and the Saudi, uh, you know, intervention with U.S. help and so forth. And we're talking about millions. That is a genocide of Muslims and of Arabs and of Central Asians that has taken place under the guise of the war on terror, which of course is completely papered over because this was supposed to be a civilizing mission. Right. I mean, 
And how else do you explain that other than racism, Deepa? Because we're talking about at least 37 million people, according to the Cost of War Project, that have been displaced. I mean, mm-hmm. made refugees up to, I, I think, 56 million or something. I mean, it's really hard to wrap your mind around the profound impact of U.S. intervention in this region of the world in the last 20 years and the ongoing atrocities uh, from drone strikes, special ops, night raids, the judge, jury and executioner, this notion that we can we have the moral high ground to take people out without due process. It's the undercutting of death tolls. It's this complacency and normalization of of the things that we're talking about. And how else do you explain that? If this were white people in Europe, it would be a completely different story. That's exactly right, Abby. I think you really, uh, you know, got it with the way you just explained that, which is that, you know, let me concretize this. Um, One of the ways in which civilian casualty counts from drone strikes has been minimized is by claiming that all military age men in areas that the U.S. is targeting with drone strikes are enemy combatants. That is, they are guilty until proven innocent, right? So this is a tweaking of the law to basically disenfranchise people, not even count them as human, not even count them as a statistic in uh, drone strike uh, attacks um, as a way to minimize uh, civilian uh, death counts. I mean, this is the profound way in which Uh, People have no rights. They are dehumanized. And again, this is not new in U.S. history. After all, uh, U.S. law actually said that Native Americans cannot be considered citizens, right? This is the famous Cherokee v. Georgia case in the early uh, 19th century. And similarly, Dred Scott in the 1850s uh, suggested that whites have no obligations to freed blacks. Uh, because they are not considered citizens. And therefore, when you remove people from the status of being a subject, of being a citizen, of being a person that actually has rights, you can do anything you want to them, right? You can kill them, you can take away their lands, uh, you can subject them to enslavement and uh, completely get away because no one will hold you accountable to it. Let's talk about Afghanistan. Uh, You've, you spoken about this extensively. You've talked about the notion of imperialist feminism, colonial feminism. And I just think it's just fascinating that during the 20 years of this brutal occupation and bombing of this country, women's rights completely fell by the wayside in the U.S. public discourse. They were virtually untalked about. I mean, yet the weeks before the invasion, you can see it was the biggest, most pressing issue in the world, Deepa, the women's (laughs) rights in Afghanistan. And then when Biden, of course, decided to pull the troops out, suddenly, again, this was the most prominent issue in in our discourse. I mean, this fantasy that somehow women's rights were advancing under this occupation outside of Kabul. I mean, it's just unbelievable to me. Indeed. Um, You know, the way I talk about this is that Afghan uh, Afghan women were discovered suddenly at two moments, right, when the U.S. went into Afghanistan in 2001 and when Biden was pulling troops out uh, in, uh, you know, earlier this year in 2021. And I had done a study actually with a colleague in terms of how much media attention was given to the plight of Afghan women in the years leading up to uh, 9-11 and the U.S.'s uh, planned uh, invasion and occupation. And it's stunning, even though Afghan women uh, lived under pretty harsh conditions, not just under the Taliban, but before that, under the various Mujahideen factions, which the U.S. had backed, by the way, and funded and trained back in the 80s uh, as part of the proxy war with the Soviet Union. So even though, you know, feminist groups and others knew uh, that these were the conditions for Afghan women, they were really not newsworthy. You know, there were maybe a couple of dozen stories in the broadcast media All of a sudden, you see these primary definers of news, people like uh, Laura Bush, people like Tony Blair and his uh, wife, Sherry Blair, suddenly starting to brand the war on terror as a war for the rights of women and children, right? This is the colonial feminist or imperial feminist narrative. 
And suddenly in the broadcast media, there are hundreds of stories of Afghan women, you know, fully clothed in their blue uh, signature burqas and why it was, you know, the civilizing mission, the white man's burden to go off um, and to rescue them. And as you correctly pointed out, Abby, in the 20 years, um, these women were completely forgotten. The reality is that um, in the city centers, initially, there was some progress around education, around healthcare. There were NGOs, you know, with well-intentioned people wanting to do uh, some good work. But in a piece that I published in Truth Out, I actually cite uh, a national intelligence report that was published earlier this year, which says in no uncertain terms that these few developments were largely rolled back even in city centers in places controlled by U.S.-backed uh, forces. So there was you know, limited development in the city. But in the countryside, which is where 70% of Afghan women actually live, there was absolutely no improvement. If anything, women were thrown from the fire, uh, from the you know, from the fireplace into the fire. Like the situation got worse because the U.S. allies who took over from the Taliban, these were the same Mujahideen warlords, actually made the situation much worse for women uh, in the countryside. So I recommend the uh, piece by uh, Anand Gopal if people want to put themselves in the shoes of what it was like for uh, Afghan women in the rural areas, read it because the picture is not one of, you know, this really oppressed and sad woman or whatever. The main protagonist in her story is someone who is fierce. She stood up both against U.S. attacks. She also opposed uh, the Taliban um, she's highly critical of her husband. She's got a great sense of humor. In other words, there's a sort of flattened image that we get in the West of these women as poor sad sacks, when in fact they're very much agents of change in their own lives and in their communities. Wow, that was extremely well put. And it is just, it's shameful how these women were tokenized and used and you know, churn just for a media cycle um, to perpetuate this notion that we should just stay in this indefinite war. It's absolutely grotesque. And yeah, I mean, their agency and power was completely detached, you know, from this narrative. And they were just painted as these downtrodden people who need who need saving, Deepa, this perpetual notion that we need to save these poor women and how did that happen in Iraq? I mean, let's just talk about the effect on women's rights that these imperialist ventures actually cause, because you've you've written about this extensively. I mean, I, I have a quote from one of your articles where you say that, quote, 70 percent of salaried women in Iraq had government jobs. And when the entire government ministries were dismantled by the U.S. after the invasion, women lost their jobs. And a lot of times this meant that they had to earn their subsistence by selling their bodies, Deepa. Mm-hmm. It is it is stunning um, what happened. I mean, the situation in Iraq is slightly different from the situation in Afghanistan in the 2000s. Keep in mind that before I go to Iraq, I just want to make one more point about Afghanistan, mm-hmm. which is that back in the 1980s, Afghan women in the cities worked outside the home. They held jobs as teachers, as lawyers, as doctors, and so forth. So it's not true that in Afghanistan, things have always been bad for women. That, you know, we really need to study the history of these countries to expose not only, you know, the kind of image of victims, you know, people who are incapable of doing anything, um, but also the complicity of the U.S., in supporting these reactionary Mujahideen forces that begin the attack um, on women's rights. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Switching over to Iraq, Iraq was a highly developed society, modern medicine, you know, uh, fantastic uh, development in, in terms of buildings and roads and all the rest of it. And absolutely, women held jobs outside the home. But once that country was destroyed, and certainly the destruction began in the first Gulf War of 1991, and then was exacerbated in its effects with the draconian sanctions regimes 
that the U.S. and the U.N. imposed. You know, there were two U.N. secretary, I think, assistant secretary generals, um, Dennis Halliday and Hans von Sponeck, who were in charge of the sanctions program, both of whom resigned in protest, one of them even saying that what is happening is genocide, right? So that's the backdrop, but still it wasn't as devastated, um, you know, as it is today um, when the U.S. decided to invade in 2003. And then the situation just gets so much worse for uh, Iraqi women who have to sell themselves, you know, who have to sell their bodies into sex work. And then, of course, if you just look at that, if you are a Western journalist and you drop into Iraq uh, in this time period, you know, after the U.S. Uh, invasion and occupation, and you see that women, the only way they can sustain themselves is through sex work, you know, you draw the conclusion, oh, this is what Islam does to women, you know, uh, this is how these backward societies treat their women. No, 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 no. Let's look at the conditions under which, uh, you know, the only uh, option left for these women uh, was this kind of work. I think that history and that context is super important. And, you know, I'll say one last point, and, you know, if we want to talk more about this, we certainly can. Uh, in my piece and truth out, you know, I make a comparison between how on if the U.S. pulled out at the end of August from Afghanistan, the very next day, Abby, you'll remember on September 1st, the Supreme Court decided that it would not overturn the ban on abortion in Texas, right? This mm. is a horrific ban, which pretty much makes it makes most uh, abortions illegal, right? And which takes away a fundamental right that women should have, which is control over their own body. So here we have this interesting juxtaposition. On the one hand, the claim to liberate Afghan women. On the other hand, a decision that devastates uh, the rights that women do enjoy here, thanks to the feminist movement um, of the 1960s. And yet, you know, uh, journalists didn't make that connection and actually questioned the imperial feminist narrative to say, how on earth could you possibly claim to be liberating Afghan women when our own Supreme Court right here is attacking women's rights? Exactly. Exactly. And to push, actually have the audacity to push the notion that U.S. intervention will help liberate women after what we've seen, after what you just outlined, Deepa. I mean, it's 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 laughable. It's it would be laughable if it wasn't so tragic because of mm -hmm. this is the reality. And, you know, just the fact that the U.S. media claimed, you know, acting as stenographers for the state basically said that, we need to stay because the Afghan women basically taking away their agency again, saying they can't possibly organize for better living conditions without us being there as the overseers, you know, as, as the rulers of their domain. I mean, it's just it's just unbelievable. Um, <laughs> like, I mean, that's the racism, right? Abby? Yeah. It's like there's a way in which this Orientalist and this Islamophobic network is meant to make us feel better. Oh, we are so much more well off than, you know, these poor women or what have you. But that does a disservice to women right here, right? Because mm -hmm. it discounts the agency of women in this country. Let's not forget mm -hmm. that to win the right to vote, it took no less than 100 years of agitation by the women's suffrage movement to actually get that basic fundamental right, right, to be considered a citizen, to actually be able to articulate political choices. Um, and similarly, Roe v. Wade was passed at the high point of the women's movement of the 1960s uh, and 1970s because women agitated, they fought, you know, they fought for all sorts of things, not just the right to control their bodies. But, you know, I teach my students that if you if you just look back 50 some years, you know, in this country, women couldn't get a credit card. They could not uh, ha have a bank account. Um, there were these master and head laws where, you know, your husband pretty much uh, uh, had control over anything you may have inherited. Um, and so 
how why has that changed it changed not because there was some you know enlightened moment it changed because women fought for it right here so in the end imperial feminism not only erases the agency of women in uh, afghanistan in iraq and in other developing nations but right here in the united states and it prevents women here from forming solidarity and relations of solidarity with their counterparts around the world based on the notion that look we all no matter where we live as women do face oppression it looks different in different contexts but we have an interest in working with each other understanding each other's difficulties and fighting against the rulers in our own societies um who do very little but speak you know talk a big talk about uh women's liberation that's fucking crazy i did not realize that those laws existed a mere 50 years ago and it is absolutely to absolve our guilt our repression our patriarchy and these laws that we're talking about right now that in 2021 we could actually have a virtual ban on abortion that will set a groundbreaking precedent in this supreme court that's dominated by essentially christian fascists i mean that that that's that's the plan you know that this is what the federalist society is all about and this is what trump's intent was and all of these people who you know who are working toward this goal deepa to strip away women's rights and it is it's just surreal to sit back and watch this unfold um meanwhile everyone's up in arms about women halfway around the world that we should have no business being involved in um and instead of standing in solidarity with their struggles and their plight i want to take us back to 911 because you know such a big part of your book and such a big part of the legacy of the war on terror here at home of course was the war waged against muslims here in in mosques and the bush administration's war on muslims with things like the patriot act mass surveillance this entrapment mechanism that reached far and wide virtually every single mosque in certain areas had to worry about being spied on and entrapped in these plots and it's just incredible that in conjunction with George Bush being rehabilitated you know after the 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 systemic torture after these brutal wars after the entrapment program i mean he's welcomed into many liberal spaces many circles with open arms making tens of millions of dollars on speaking fees I guess just bring us back to that time that that palpable tension that that horrific onslaught against the Muslim community in the wake of 9/11 and where has it gone because we you even talk about how there was actually a spike under the Obama administration. I mean just walk us back through that era. Absolutely. Um I mean the <laughs> welcoming of Bush into various uh liberal circles is just so alarming isn't it it's <laughs> i comparison to trump he seems wonderful and yet it's it's just you know the the barometer keeps shifting further and further right so that somebody like bush can appear to be palatable today when in fact and you know this is what you asked me to talk about he is the author or at least he was the president when a series of really draconian measures were used to target muslims so let's let's talk through some of these some of them many of them still exist today it's not as if the uh biden administration is going to do away with them anytime soon mm-hmm. so uh let's begin with the uh mass surveillance programs right now it's not the case that surveillance of muslim communities began after 911 they've been around at least since the early 1970s when the national security state made an association which said that all arabs for at that time it was arabs because arab came to stand in for muslim at that time all arabs are potential terrorists and so they need to be surveilled they need to be interviewed and so on and operation bolder was a program that was introduced by nixon actually back in the uh, early 70s and you've seen many iterations of these kind of programs which are roughly modeled on COINTELPRO the infamous FBI program that was used to target you know uh the civil rights movement the black power movement um you know the anti-war movement and so forth so anyway move to the 911 moment these sorts of surveillance programs are then completely expanded 
uh, you know, in, in fantastically huge ways. So that some scholars like uh, Arun Kundanani have argued that the surveillance of Muslim communities is equivalent to what East Germans experienced under the Stasi, right? This is a horribly repressive police force. Um, and so you've had, for you know, take a concrete case, there are many FBI programs, but let's take the NYPD's surveillance program of the tri-state area. They sent people into mosques who they called mosque crawlers. Um, they sent people into um, bookstores, into universities, um, all to gather information about these suspicious people who they believe uh, are potential terrorists. Never mind, of course, that not one terrorism uh, conviction resulted from any of the surveillance work, right? But that was the mentality is that this is a suspect community. And that's how racism works, right? It is uh, through the understanding that people are guilty this homogenous community is guilty before they have actually done anything. This does not apply to white people, even though we know that white supremacists and neo-Nazis and so on are responsible for far more deaths after 9-11 than so-called jihadist forces. There are no programs, you know, of mass surveillance of uh, white communities, you know, going into churches or into sporting uh, leagues or what have you. But it, that's how racism works, right? It's, it's an entire community is homogenized based on the actions of 19 hijackers. So you have that. And it's very, very, um, it's disconcerting to be part of the Muslim community. There's a really good documentary called The Feeling of Being Watched which is made by somebody who lives slightly outside of uh, Chicago. And she's a journalist and she interviews her community to see the levels of fear and sometimes even paranoia that comes from being treated in this way. So that's one program. Let's take the case of, you mentioned en uh, entrapment. Let's take the case of the FBI's entrapment program. They have, uh, the last time I checked, over 15,000 paid informants. Um, these are people who are sent into Muslim communities, into, you know, and, and when we say Muslims, it's not just, you know, Arabs, it's not just people from South Asia, it's also black Muslims, right? Um, uh, a significant portion of Muslims in the U.S. are uh, African American. And so these informants go into this, these communities, again, based on the notion that all Muslims are, quote unquote, potential terrorists. So let's nab them before they actually do anything. And they entice people typically, and this is what uh, journalist Trevor Aronson shows in his analysis of more than 400, 500 uh, such cases, they prey on vulnerable typically poor and working class men who often also have mental health challenges. They give them ideas to carry out an attack. They even provide the, you know, material like fake bombs and so on and encourage them to go out and do something. And then, of course, when they do carry out uh, such an attack, they're nabbed and yay, yet another terror plot foil. This is what happened with the Newburg Four for African-American uh, uh, men who were entrapped uh, by the FBI. And just, you know, coincidentally, the media was, uh, was there to, you know, uh, catch this, uh, stop this, you know, to catch the stopping of this plot and so forth. The, this continues. This continues even uh, today. The problem is it goes very much under the radar and therefore, very little is, uh, you know, said about it. And you, you, you talked about how under Obama these got worse. Absolutely, it did. Um, Obama's countering violent extremism, which is his counter radicalization program, involved not just informants, but now recruiting members, respected members of the Muslim community, imams, teachers, coaches, doctors, things like that to serve as informants within their own community. And what's so crazy is if you read some of the interviews with people who've, you know, been, who were recruited by the Obama administration to do this, they later find out that they themselves are being spied on as well. 
So there's absolutely no trust in these community leaders um, as well. So that's the nightmare that Muslim Americans have been living under uh, for the last uh, two decades. And of course, disproportionately, the impact of all of this is on working class uh, uh, Muslims, whereas middle and upper class can, you know, have access to uh, lawyers and can protect themselves somewhat against these uh, methods of uh, uh, targeting. Wow, I had no idea that Obama's program actually did that. Uh, That is incredible and super counterintuitive. And I'm not surprised at all that it had such a negative effect. And really what this program did and continues to do is just have a mass chilling effect on political activity, too. I mean, people who do nothing wrong, who feel like they can't engage in their own society or democracy um, because of of who they are, because of the, the their skin color, their religion. It's just it's a tragedy through and through. And then you have Trump. I mean, this is someone who it, it was really shocking, I think, for a lot of people because, you know, after the era of Obama, you have a, a man rising to power who was basically a, a completely open Islamophobe in an unprecedented way. Um, you know, of course, you have the systemic Islamophobic policies like through the Bush administration and stuff like that. But when you have like someone embracing racism and being racist and, you know, praising people like General Pershing, for example, who supposedly <laughs> dipped bullets in pig's blood to genocide Muslims as some sort of example that should be followed. He basically made explicitly clear that Muslim lives should be devalued. Uh, did anything change for Muslims under the four years of the Trump administration or was it kind of just still the same status quo policies? Yeah, well, so in the book, I actually um, differentiate between various kinds of Islamophobia or anti-Muslim racism, both in terms of its rhetoric as well as, uh, you know, policy. Now, the one thing to be said is that policy has stayed remarkably similar Uh, whether it's foreign policy or domestic policy through the course of the last 20 years, you know, whether it was Bush, um, Obama, and then Trump. And by the way, when I say the last 20 years, by in no way, shape or form, am I saying that the war on terror is over, as you correctly pointed out, Abby, um, you know, it is through drone strikes and special operation forces and so forth that the war on terror will continue the sort of dramatic wars and troops on the ground, that strategy has changed, right? Whereas, you know, the thousand bases, a thousand plus bases that the U.S. has around the world, uh, you know, obviously massive expansion since 9-11, those are not getting dismantled anytime soon. And it's from those bases, really, that, you know, many of the drone strikes take place, including the one in Afghanistan um, back in August, where, you know, um, a family was killed, including, I believe it was seven children. Um, uh, That strike was carried out from, I believe, Qatar, a base in Qatar. I could be wrong, but it's certainly one in the region. Anyway, so policy stays the same, but language and rhetoric um, keeps uh, changing. So let's examine that. Um, Trump comes to power on a blatantly xenophobic, that is anti-Mexican, anti-Central American platform, as well as on an Islamophobic uh, platform, right? So even during his campaign, um, he of course is talking about how allowing Syrian refugees into this country is equivalent to, you know, I don't know, the Trojan horse, that is, uh, they are, they are it, the way he put it is that the Trojan horse will look like a joke compared to the number of uh, Syrians who are coming in, who are these fifth columnists who want to take over the U.S. and so forth. So what he does is he's, he legitimates right-wing Islamophobia, right? So liberal Islamophobia is the kind that you see in people like uh, Obama, who, you know, talks multiculturalism, who says, you know, I reject the clash of civilizations um, argument, which was something favored by uh, the Bush administration. That's, you know, conservative Islamophobia, whereas uh, uh, Obama is all about, you know, Muslims have contributed to world history. They are very much a part of the U.S. history and so forth, but nevertheless carries out the same policies, right? The same radicalization policies, escalates the drone wars um, and so forth. 
Now, Trump's language is blatantly right-wing Islamophobia. There has been a small network of far right-wing groups that have come together, that have been working together since about the 1990s, but then who solidified their relationship uh, after 9-11. They're called the Islamophobia Network. Um, and they put out the most bizarre, uh, you know, sorts of uh, ideas about Muslims. So the notion that 80% of mosques are grounds for terrorism training, this is something that one of the think tanks associated with the Islamophobia network put out, which then becomes a talking point where other politicians like Newt Gingrich and so on give uh, Amplify in the media. But for the most part, they tended not to be part of the mainstream in the years before uh, Trump came to power. However, what he did is he recruited some of these people and therefore legitimated them and legitimated their conspiracy theories um, about uh, Muslims as fifth columnists, as wanting to institute Sharia law and so on. And, you know, by recruiting them to official positions, they then are able to legitimately ask for time in the mainstream media, whereas earlier their somewhat outlandish claims um, could be dismissed as such because it was just so out of the mainstream. So the biggest accomplishment, if you want to call it that, of the Trump regime um, is, you know, that he legitimated this far right-wing form of anti-Muslim racism. And of course, he does that most dramatically with the Muslim ban, right, which is to stop people coming in from five Muslim-majority countries uh, because they present a threat, never mind, as a Cato Institute study uh, has shown, that people from these countries were not responsible for a single terrorism-related death uh, in the U.S., I believe from the 1970s uh, to when the ban was actually passed. So with no grounds to do this, you know, he's acting on a blatantly racist narrative about people from Muslim-majority countries. And, of course, the far right and his base uh, eat it up and are quite thrilled about that. It's such an important point because I've heard way too many people conflate, you know, I think we're just so disillusioned with Obama and Biden, it's like it, it's it's hard for people to really understand the damage that Trump did because it's kind of easy to wrap or like you say, the paper over his legacy by being like, oh, well, he didn't start any new wars. So, well, really on paper, um, you know, the policy wasn't really that different. But rhetoric matters, Deepa. Rhetoric yeah. matters. And also the assimilation like the entry of of the people who were even considered too far extreme for even the bush administration people like frank gaffney john mm -hmm. bolton mike pompeo these are rampant islamophobic neocons who were outlier crazy outliers during the bush administration they were folded into the trump administration legitimated and then as you said paraded around the mainstream media seeding out these ideas in the mainstream and rhetoric has consequences. You are legitimated by the president of the United States, the strongest position in the world through his Twitter feed, through retweeting people, the QAnon stuff. It all folds in together in a really disturbing way. And I, I just I just hope people really realize that. And, and you know, here we are with Biden and, uh, you know, it's a new day, Deepa. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, yes. uh, you know, let's talk about that because it is it is an interesting direction that we're going because in the public, the public perception is that, OK, the war in Afghanistan's over. The Iraq war is over. Biden made this announcement for the end of combat operations in Yemen, Iraq and, and um, Afghanistan. And, you know, Syria is basically totally ignored now, even though we're still there protecting the oil that now you have the Asia pivot introduced by Obama, yeah. but really embraced and reset by the Biden administration that is essentially directing the propaganda at new enemies, you know, non-Muslim countries like China, where they're actually yeah. using the treatment of Muslims as a reason why the U.S. needs to intervene. Forget about the last 20 years. Forget about the last <laughs> couple centuries. Now we need to help Uyghurs. Now we need to, you know, excoriate China for human rights abuses. And we really need to embrace this great power uh, global power competition doctrine with China. 
I guess, how do you see Islamophobia playing a role in this coming period? Right. Uh, I mean, that was a huge and complex uh, question. (laughs) (laughs) Only you can (laughs) such such an excellent question with answers in it. So (laughs) let me me offer some reflections on it. I mean, first thing, I, I think you're absolutely right, which is, that uh, where you started your point is that people rightly criticize Obama and rightly criticize uh, Biden, but we cannot underestimate the damage that uh, the rise of somebody like Trump actually represented. I mean, the January 6th Capitol riot is a significant moment. I'm sure it will be written up in histories of this period as the moment at which white supremacists and the far right actually got a sense of their power enabled by the commander in chief, right? Enabled by people uh, within government and at the top of the society. And the fact that, you know, if you look at the anatomy of who was involved, um, it, it was a lot of business owners and, you know, sort of middle classy type people But it was also, um, you know, members, current members of the police, uh, current and former members of the military. And, you know, this country is extremely polarized uh, between, you know, the reactionary right after what was it, 80 million people voted for uh, Trump? Uh, I forget, but it was an astounding. Yeah, 8 million uh, more people than before. Yeah. Right, right. Uh, We cannot discount what that means and how, you know, what some scholars have called white lore, which is the kind of stories that white people tell themselves quietly, how, you know, racist stories, right, and stories of victimization and so on, how that became legitimized in the mainstream so that some people felt empowered to not only storm the uh, Capitol, but also, you know, uh, know, attack police officers knowing full well that they would be treated with kid gloves, you know, by some chance BLM protesters had done that, they would either be dead or put into life, uh, into prison for life. So it's important to to look at what this particular presidency actually uh, legitimated. Um, It's also important, I think, to look at the shift he orchestrated in terms of international relations, whereas earlier, at least from, you know, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you had in the U.S. something called liberal hegemony, which is this notion that the U.S. is this multiracial, feminist, and even gay-friendly nation and because it's so multiracial and progressive and so on, it is an exceptional state. Of course, the idea of American exceptionalism goes back much before that. But therefore, it has the authority to police the world and spread its values and so on. Trump reversed that, right? His, his policy was called illiberal hegemony, which was basically based on an America first, uh, you know, making America great kind of um, attitude. But it's not the case he did that he didn't intervene around the world. He absolutely did, you know, whether it came to, uh, you know, the Middle East or what have you. I mean, look at the case of drone strikes. Drone strikes actually first began in the Clinton administration. It steadily uh, escalated after that under Bush and then was dramatically increased um, under the Obama administration. But Trump actually topped it even more. I mean, it's quite incredible. People like Nadia Benjamin and others um, have studied uh, the number of uh, drone strikes and Trump really, really ratcheted it up to a completely different uh, and new level. And that's, you know, and, and we've heard Biden say that he has no problems continuing the war on terror uh, using uh, drone strikes. So the policies are similar, but they're also, you know, things that got escalated quite dramatically by uh, uh, by Trump. So then to the, you know, this the sort of latter part of what you asked, which is the pivot to Asia and what Islamophobia is going to look like um, in this current period. So first of all, you're absolutely right that, um, you know, the recognition that China could not be contained was something that was articulated as policy in the uh, Obama administration. And one of his foreign policy papers talked about the pivot to Asia, but he was not able to carry that out uh, 
because the U.S. was bogged down in, uh, you know, wars with ISIS and so forth in the Middle East, Trump actually is able to sort of push that to a much greater extent. I mean, there's this one video clip on YouTube, I think, um, where you hear, you know, <laughs> clips of uh, Trump saying, China, 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 China. <laughs> <laughs> which really became his central focus, but it became a central focus in a bipartisan way, even before Trump made it a big deal. What Trump did is he he introduced older racist tropes about uh, East Asians and about uh, the Chinese, the notion of yellow peril, which goes back to the 19th century, the idea that, you know, Chinese are dangerous, duplicitous individuals who uh, come into the U.S. to, you know, again, carry out all sorts of plots in ways, uh, you know, not dissimilar to how Muslims are considered, right? Racisms don't live in their own little uh, pockets. These racist ideologies often blend and mesh with one another. So Trump, uh, you know, brings back those ideas of yellow peril, but also his use of the Asian flu, the Chinese flu, right, in relation to COVID. And that escalates attacks on Asian Americans, uh, especially East Asian Americans uh, in the United States. But in terms of policy, there is a very clear consensus that great uh, power politics is really what is going to characterize um, U.S. imperial dominance uh, in the coming decades. The New York Times has been running a few pieces in the last few weeks about how the CIA, for instance, which has used a lot of its resources on counterterrorism, is now reallocating some of those resources to intelligence uh, in relation to China and information gathering. And, you know, um, of course, they have for the longest time been trying to recruit spies. Um, in China and have successfully done so and in Pakistan and elsewhere. And actually, there was another New York Times piece lamenting uh, the way in which Pakistan and China turn CIA spies into double agents. So we are back in <laughs> the era of, you know, the 1950s type uh, spy games and uh, intelligence gatherings and cold and hot wars. Uh, but by no means is Islamophobia gone. By no means is the war on terror gone because the infrastructure that was created uh, thanks to the war on terror is not going to be dismantled. So just between 2018 and 2020, the U.S. ran so-called counterterrorism programs in 85 countries around the world, right? Um, they're not going to suddenly stop doing that. Uh, just because, you know, there's a move away militarily uh, from parts of the Middle East uh, towards China because rivalry with China plays out on every continent, right? Mm -hmm. um, if, if It's so funny how if the Iraq war inadvertently strengthened Iran, the Afghan war inadvertently strengthened China because while the U.S. was wasting money on the means of war and death, China was building these roads, China was building these pipelines all across the region in order to tap into the wealth there. And in fact, um, uh, Afghanistan has these uh, minerals uh, uh, that, you know, are, uh, you know, likely to be very, very useful. And the people that they are, you know, folks have written about how the people that they're going to immediately try to uh, sell these rare uh, minerals too is uh, China. Uh, and so it may just displace opium and the drug trade in terms of the Taliban's uh, key source of revenue. So um, that's the situation. But uh, I, I do think that anti-Muslim racism, the fear of terrorism, and the labeling of anybody who refuses U.S. political hegemony as terrorist. Um, that is not going to go away um, anytime in the near future. I just, I, I'm going to let you go soon. I just have a couple more points that I want you to comment on, Deepa. And you mentioned just this kind of shift from this multicultural kind of Islamophobia to the rampant, you know, open, flagrant racism that Trump embraced. And now we're kind of back to this Obama esque uh, type of policymaking and and rhetoric. And 
it just reminds me of how I, I do hear a lot of well-intentioned people on in liberal spaces and left spaces using language like Wahhabist or Islamist or jihadist to describe, you know, members of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and things like that. And I guess I just wanted to ask your opinion on if this language is problematic at all, because I'm what I'm afraid of is painting, you know, millions of people who ascribe to something like Wahhabism as potential terrorists is problematic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, when I did the second edition of the book, actually, I um, so the first edition had more of a discussion of these forces uh, of political Islam. Um, and what I went into is how these, you know, groups, these parties are by no means homogenous. They arise in different countries, in different contexts, with different aims and ambitions. And what's remarkable is that some of them, there's continuity between left forces back in the 70s and 80s, who, with the collapse of uh, secular nationalism and with the collapse of communist and other parties, gravitate to the parties of Islam as a way to continue their activism. I'm not trying to paper over al-Shabaab or al-Qaeda or ISIS or what have you, but to somehow take these groups and to paint everybody else with the same brush, what's known as the ISISification of political Islam, is deeply problematic. I think that people need to study who these forces are, what they're doing, and what their aims are, and not buy into the ways in which uh, you know uh, the elite in this country and their academic mouthpieces um, actually attempt to homogenize uh, groups, whatever you call them, uh, Islamists um, uh, and so on, um, because that's that's really a political maneuver to continue to maintain the war on terror. I removed that chapter, by the way, from the second edition of the book because I did a complete rehaul of the book, uh, new research, brought it all the way up to the Obama, uh, to the Trump era. And there's so much work that's been done on Islamist parties and formations that there's no way I could, you know, uh, adequately do justice to that literature. So I'll just say this, which is, um, you know, jihad versus Mac world, that kind of formulation is extremely simplistic and people should avoid falling into that trap. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with you. Um And thank you for talking about the second edition of your book, Islamophobia and the Politics of Empire. I encourage people to get a copy because it is incredible. It's it's full of new material. Even if you have the first edition, this is like a whole new book. So definitely check it out. Follow Deepa's work. And then I just wanted to close it out with a couple thoughts if you wanted to comment on it. Um, You know, we didn't get into the actual history of the deep roots of Islamophobia and anti-Muslim sentiment that has really defined the history and culture of, of Western society. I feel like it's been such a a part of American pop culture for so long, too. You know, these racist depictions of villains wielding swords through the desert and cartoons and such. And then you have another kind of facet of this, which is the current of Mm -hmm. anti-Palestinian, you know, the mentality associating Palestinians as this kind of iconic, dangerous Muslim terrorist, which undercuts a lot of a lot of the narratives and and perpetuation of Islamophobia. It's always this association with Palestine. And, you know, it's just so interesting. I it, I don't know if you have any comments on that, but, Absolutely. you know, this, this propaganda has been seeded out there even well before the U.S. coming on the world stage as an empire in World War II. Absolutely. Since we have very little time, I yeah. won't go into the first part of your uh, comment question. Um, I'll just speak to the part about Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm working on a book that's called, uh, tentatively called Terror Craft. And I have a piece out in the journal Race and Class with the same title. But I actually trace the joint production of the first Arab and then Muslim terrorist as a collaboration between primarily the neoconservatives in the United States and Likud party leaders and intellectuals in Israel. And what I show is how for the US as well as for Israel, um, it becomes very important for Israeli enemies, that is, you know, Arab 
nationalists who are fighting against settler colonialism in that country to somehow be projected as enemies of the West as a whole um, and as people who are branded terrorists um, in order to justify policies of imprisonment um, and so forth. And so there's a lot of collaboration, this idea of the terrorist as a racial figure is something that goes back to the 1970s and it and it involves a pushback against progressive forces who come to the fore in the period of uh, decolonization struggles from the 1940s to the 1970s who really problematize this idea of terrorism as somehow being what non-state actors do and instead focus on colonial nations as state terrorists, right? And so to push back against that, numerous resolutions in the US General Assembly, acceptance of Palestinian rights in the UN General Assembly, Yasser Arafat is invited to come and speak uh, and so forth. And so to push back against that, um, there is a series of conferences that are organized by the Jonathan Institute in Israel, headed by Benjamin Netanyahu, that creates this new narrative and along with it certain policies. And you see that in the Reagan, um, you know, the first war on terror uh, orchestrated by Reagan in the 1980s. So I could talk on and on, <laughs> but maybe you'll have me back to discuss Terrorcraft another day. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Deepa, for your time, for your incredible uh, contribution to this subject. And I really appreciate your work. Thanks again. Thank you. Always a pleasure. 